0: In her collection of essays, The White Album, Joan Didion writes, We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We also do so in order to love. In this live late-night lit event, six artists read a short scene from a literary work that shaped their idea of love. Romantic, familial, friendly or otherwise. Unfortunately, the recording for this episode is slightly cut short, so we're jumping in here as host Claire Sullivan is telling us a story.
1: Age, dictate how horny you actually are. I wish I'd known this as a teenager, because I had an atrocious sex education at the Catholic school I went to. Surprise. I wasn't even taught how to put a condom on. <laughs> let alone what a dental dam is or what symptoms show if you've got chlamydia. Still don't know. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only the bottom science class was taught, how, was taught the condom banana thing. I guess they thought the top science class were too nerdy for sex. <laughs> anyway, my own sex ed I conducted myself was either through my own DIY slutty efforts or through my porn. Uh, my porn consisted of uh, two things. One... A post of Heath Ledger, circa two hands, so year 2000. Uh, he's got these really fantastic cum gutters. And um, does everyone know what cum gutters are? Oh, they're, they're
2: the,
1: you know, that, that bit. The V. The, 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 the V, the cum gutters, they're there. Um, and you can also see his pubes, just the top bit. I was going to actually bring the poster tonight, but I left it at my friend's house and she still had it. And I was like, oh. Uh, (laughs) I got the, actually, I got the poster in the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra. (laughs) Mm, They sell porn there. Mm. Uh, The other bit of my porn is, of course, Wikipedia. Specifically, any page on Wikipedia that has any kind of sexual nature to it, which is how I found out about Erica Jong's fear of flying. I was probably mazing to the feminism page and got lost through the rabbit holes that Wikipedia takes you down. Mm. Uh, Erica Jong's, it's, I looked up on the internet it said Erica Jong, but I go to say Erica Jong, but the internet says Erica Jong. Anyway, I've never met her, so I can't ask her. Uh, Erica Jong's book was pretty seminal, according to Wikipedia. Uh, it was published in the early '70s, and it, encouraged, it both encouraged women to leave their loveless marriages, and also coined the phrase "zipless fuck," <laughs> a phrase which I'm sure no one has said out loud since 1976, <laughs> other than wef- rather than referencing fear of flying, like right now. Uh, a zipless fuck is a consensual, sexy encounter with a stranger, and neither of you exchanged neither names nor details. Ooh. Uh, I was 16 when I read the Wikipedia entry on Zippler's Fuck, but actually I only got my grubby, horned-up paws on a copy of that book this year at one of my other jobs. Uh, I work at that weird, cheap bookshop. You know, the book grocer? <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I worked there. <laughs> actually, the other night I was finishing work and then um, these three people came in and they bought some books and then I, came, I ran up to the poetry night here and then they were there. They are like, oh, hey! I was like, oh, hey! Did you... Enjoy your book purchase. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I was reading. I was reading uh, Erica Jong's uh, *Fear of Flying*. A uh, heartbeat going off in of my undies when I read that quote that I said at the start about searching for an unknown man since I was sixteen. I felt a bit shocked because I felt like she was describing me, except uh, you know, changed the gender from man to person because I'm a bisexual baby. <laughs> uh, as you can check, I did actually write lots of A's and Y's and E's at the end of baby. <laughs> um, anyway, I guess what I'm saying is: um, does anyone want to go on a date? <laughs> I don't have enough time for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner, but I do love sneaking in beers to the movie and movies and passing on. And I guess uh, that's all I've ever been searching for since I was 16. Someone to sneak beers into the movies with and make out in the shed that I live in. (laughs) I live in a shed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you, that's my piece. uh, so, uh, next up, we've got the wonderful other artists in the piece. So, first up, we've got Natasha Hatanto. Natasha is a writer, education assistant at the NGV, and a model repped by Just Coup. A model! We've got a model here. It's fucking cool. Uh, She recently left the game writing industry to focus on finishing her novel. Her visual poetries and personal essays have been published in Botanicals, Braindrip, Glasshouse Magazine and Penciled In. She's a fierce advocate for feminism, accessible and quality education, mental health issues, LGBTQ+, and diverse representation. Though born in Indonesia, she considers Melbourne her one true love. Welcome, Natasha! Will it be super
3: complicated if I sit down? Or is that (laughs) fine? Thank you. Hi everyone, is this fine? Yes, cool. Okay, is my quota? Yay, it's a sad quote. (laughs) Aw, yeah. Louder, the louder the awe, the better. Um, It says, I turned myself into a victim of my own romanticization. And this is by a poet. She's based in LA. And she's pretty cool. Okay. So I'm Nat. And like Claire mentioned, I've recently, very amicably, parted ways with Pixelberry Studios, which is a narrative gaming company based in San Francisco. And in short, that means that all the things that I'm about to tell you, which would have been a breach of my NDA, is is no longer a breach of my NDA. So for two years, I was a writer for their Choose Your Own Adventure mobile app called Choices. And, oh, does anyone play it? Sweet, okay. They're nice people. I have nothing against them, by the way. So the game itself, for those who don't know, is a library of visual books, and the chapters are uploaded weekly. So if we were in a choices chapter, right now this thing would be free, but then I might come up to you after and say, hey, do you want to get a drink? And then you'll have to pay $2.40 to get a drink with me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, if you do, then the money will get charged to your card, and the plot will change, and our relationship within the book will change as well. If you go to Dimmicks or Readings or Book Dep, a paperback fiction book currently costs about $20, 30 dollars, unless you go to the book grocer, which is yeah. a whole other story. But when you complete a choices book of about 16 chapters and purchase all the premium diamond scenes, it would cost about $115.2 dollars per book which has nothing to do with anything else I'm about to talk about. But as a writer, I thought that was really wild. (laughs) 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 So every week, the top 10 most purchased diamond scene makes it to what we call the diamond leaderboard. And unless your book is in that leaderboard, you can't access the fucking document. But because my team was so, so incredible, I got access for about a year and a half. And it was like a sociologist's goldmine, a map of human desire, behavior, and spending patterns. Because I noticed that even though the books on the list kept changing, the scenes that made it to that leaderboard was consistent. If we take out weaponry, vengeance, revenge opportunities, people are so fucking petty, like I'm just gonna (laughs) tell you now. (laughs) And friendship scenes were left with the romance. More specifically, three types of romantic scenes. We're entering heavy NDA breach territory (laughs) now. (laughs) Um, In no particular order, the first type is, to no surprise, sex scenes. I was assigned my first sex scene two weeks into the job, and the brief that my boss sent read, setting a close speakeasy bar that the love interest owns. And I was like, yes, okay, this is cool. Um, Time, night past midnight, still cool. Love interest, a superhuman who can turn bronze from head head to toe. And then he attached this animated image of a life-size Academy Award statue. That's what he looked like. It, it was—he was still gorgeous, though, um, wearing a tacky boxer with a rose stem on his lip, and the animation was winking. Like, <laughs> and the last thing you want to do two weeks into a new job is talk to your boss about bronze penises and lube. But, like, you gotta do what you gotta do, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. And the second scene type is best described as fluff, which is the will you marry me under the Statue of Liberty, the let's go to a sunrise picnic in a hot air balloon, or would you like to swim in this glow-in-the-dark pool with questionable hygiene (laughs) in the middle of an enchanted forest? And in these fluff scenes, as the writers were pushed to write love interests that court you, and comfort you, and basically try to make you fall in love with them. And the readers do. They fall so freaking hard, and a quick Tumblr search about any choicest love interest will come up with an insane amount of fan fiction, fan art, all that jazz. And love is the only explanation I can think of as to why the highest grossing third scene is where the love interest experiences distress. So people literally pay 240 to listen to these characters whine and get angry and frustrated and heartbroken and to know their regrets and mistakes and fears again and again and again adding up to an obscene amount of money. Just because a bunch of pixels on a screen said. I can't talk about this to anyone else, or (laughs) I really need you here with me. (laughs) My university tutor used to laugh when my friends and I said we didn't want a nine-to-five job because writing, she says, is a 24-7 job. It bleeds into your life, whether you like it or not, whether you intended it or not, and whether you realized it or not. I didn't realize at all how much this job has toyed with me until I went on dates and a diamond choice would (laughs) pop up next to my (laughs) date's face. (laughs) (laughs) 15 diamonds to kiss this cute guy as he reached the train station. 20 diamonds to buy another round of drinks for this quirky girl at the arcade. (laughs) Taking my own understanding of relationships, which was already so highly romanticized to begin with, like fucking Disney, um, is to blame here. Um, And producing a variation of it into small packages and then slapping price tags on them, it's a commodification of love. And in the last two years, I've sadly become pretty good at it. Of course, in real life, the diamonds are not actual diamonds, they're temporal, financial, emotional investments. Is this person worth my time? Are they worth the money that I'm gonna spend on dinner dates and movies and gifts, etc.? Are they worth the potential heartbreak? And how many diamonds would, should I spend on someone who promises a chance at love? Aww. None, 35. for 16 weeks of romance? (laughs) Less than I know other people might spend or more than I dare to admit. Quantifying love is such a dangerous marker of detachment, but it's something that I experience constantly in the dating landscape. And it's not just me assessing them, but it's them assessing me, me and my worth, continuously and often unforgivingly. But when we go back to the diamond leaderboard, the substances that define love are reflected so simply back to us. Sex scenes, intimacy, or one of the many forms of intimacy and connection. Fluff scenes, the juxtaposition between newness and comfort, doing new things, whether it's a small change or a grand gesture, even with someone familiar. And then again, we're back to the characters in distress. It took me an alarmingly long time to figure out that like everything I struggle with, the answer is my least favorite word in the entire English dictionary. Vulnerability. (laughs) And yes, friends, I hate that word more than moist. (laughs) (laughs) All of this is incredibly ironic because I write love stories for a living. It's really difficult for my perfectionist brain to uh, process that people don't pay 2.40 dollars to feel sad or to feel heartbroken, but they pay in spite of it. Because a relationship solely built on intimacy and adventure is just fantasy, right? And it doesn't feel real without the hardship. And there's so much to freaking unpack on the fact that real people are turning to pixelated people for real love. But if this set of data that I've snuck out from my company is a reflection of what constitutes as romance, then it would mean that in our capitalistic, creatively messy, digital age, love is still so freaking plain. Disappointingly plain. Love has never, will never, does not need romanticizing when it's real. I'll say that again. Love does not need romanticizing when it's real. And it's something I'll do good to remember the next time I ask someone, can I buy you a drink? Thank you.
1: That was awesome. All right. So now we've got Darlene Silva Soprano. Uh, Darlene is a Filipino poet. Their work has appeared in Mascara Literary Review, Australian Poetry and Cordite Poetry Review. They were also a participant in Toolkits, Poetry with Express Media in 2017. So give it up for Darlene!
4: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm reading the room and, like, there's a lot of laughter in this room. And I apologize in advance because my um, my piece is neither sexy nor funny. It's just um, <laughs> it's just all vulnerable. Um, <laughs> yeah. I um, it's so lovely to be here, and I hope that you have had a good day today, and that this event um, marks a good note to end for you guys. Today, I'm reading from the opening passages of Jeanette Winterson's novel, Written on the Body. Is that all right? Why is a measure of love loss? It hasn't rained for three months. The trees are prospecting underground, sending reserves of roots into the dry ground, roots like razors to open any artery water fat. The grapes have withered on the vine. What should be plump and firm, resisting to the touch to give itself in the mouth, is spongy and blistered. Not this year, the pleasure of rolling blue grapes between finger and thumb, juicing my palm with musk. Even the wasps this year avoid the thin brown dribble. Even the wasps this year. It was not always so. I am thinking of a certain September, wood pigeon, red admiral, yellow harvest, orange night. You said, I love you. Why is it that the most unoriginal thing we can say to one another is still the thing we long to hear? I love you is always a quotation. You did not say it first and neither did I. Yet when you say it and when I say it, we speak like savages who have found three words and worship them. I did worship them. But now I am alone on a rock hewn out of my own body Caliban said, you taught me language and my prophet aunt is I know how to curse. The red plague rid you for learning me your language. Love demands expression. It will not stay still, stay silent, be good, be modest, be seen and not heard. No, it will break out in tongues of praise, the high note that smashes the glass and spills the liquid. It is no conservationist love. It is a big game hunter and you are the game. A curse on this game. How can you stick at a game when the rules keep changing? I shall call myself Alice and play croquet with the flamingos. In Wonderland, everyone cheats and love is Wonderland, isn't it? Love makes the world go round. Love is blind. All you need is love. Nobody ever died of a broken heart. You'll get over it. It'll be different when we're married. Think of the children, times a great healer. Still waiting for Mr. Right, Miss Right, and maybe all the little rights. It's the cliches that cause the trouble. A precise emotion seeks a precise expression. If what I feel is not precise, then should I call it love? Yeah. So I first read Written on on the Body as a PDF on my iPhone 4 (laughs) 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 It was December 2013 and I was 16 years old I was at a three day camp for my Catholic Filipino youth group and I was so arrested by the book that I finished it over the next three days while I was still like participating in the camp as a facilitator and as a guitarist (laughs) The question of why is a measure of love lost, really just took over my mind. Um, because until the beginning of 2013, I'd been deep in the closet. And until coming out, I really didn't have any hope that um, I could love someone without a sense of loss. Being attached to that love, and the history of queer love really is something that is punctuated with loss. And that's real. Then in that next year, in 2014, I met this woman. And she, uh, she lived in Sydney, and we became really good friends that year, and she was really the first person that I had a crush on that I told everybody about. <laughs> um, my best friends knew, my youth group knew, um, they were actually the first community, funnily enough, that made me feel safe about my sexuality. Um, I even told my mother about my crush on this woman, and I'm really someone like who is shy around my mother. Um, so the year after that, in 2015, this woman was gonna go She was leaving Sydney, and she was going to go back to the Philippines. So naturally, I booked a flight to Sydney um, to say goodbye to her. (laughs) (laughs) Right after I graduated year 12, and like right before I went to schoolies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sydney is actually where I bought this physical copy of Written on the Body. So the materiality of the book also contains um, a lot of memories for me. And during that trip, I never told my friend about my feelings about her because I thought I could not survive the loss of our connection. And we lost touch anyway. You know, over time, I lost her anyway. And the truth is that I lost her because it's hard to maintain a friendship when you're spending all your time concealing your feelings for that person. Like Jeanette Winterson said, love demands expression. And I'm reflecting on it now as an adult who has worked to develop areas in myself to hold not just the feelings of love, but also the complications of human relationships. You know, back then in 2014, 2015, I was a kid and I didn't want to face the awkwardness and embarrassment and emotional risk that comes with love because I had measured the love that I felt for that person and came away with insurmountable loss. Why did I not think that I could survive this? Why did I believe that my expression of love would result in loss? I asked myself these questions now and it has become more ridiculous to me that I didn't tell my friend about those feelings, but I was someone else back then and that was years ago and long after that, I fell in love for the first time and I cried about being in love with that person because I finally had the space in myself to cry about the things that matter to me. Um, My practice of love has changed from person to person, but I think I still come back to this question of why is a measure of love loss? But I don't think I need to answer the question anymore um, because I have decided that loss is a part of love, but I no longer believe that it is the measure of love. On an ending note, I'd like to say that if you're interested in someone who's your friend or if you're in love with someone who's your friend and they don't know about it, I really hope that you tell them. Like, I really, really do. If you needed a sign to do it, this is it. Like, (laughs) I promise, I promise you will survive whatever happens. Um, Thank you so much.
1: That was beautiful. Holy shit. Uh, So, um, we are now going to go on a five-minute break. But before you go, I need to say some very important things. This uh, event tonight is sponsored by Archer. And we have, yes, and everyone here gets a free copy of Archer magazine. (laughs) Yes! Yes, 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 free magazine! And it's like a fucking great magazine. It's, there's, an, there's, a, there's a photographer in here who I love, Shelly Horan. She takes photos at, um, uh, I go there every Thursday, you know, Honcho! That's it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking love Honcho. She takes photos of the artists at Honcho for like a year and then she had this beautiful exhibition. Uh, it's so, oh, there's so much good shit in here. Uh, anyway, so there's ta- Get One, everyone here gets one. Second important thing, tonight is the night, as you said earlier, to write, to tell the person you love that you love them. And the best way to do that is through a love letter. Mm, mm, mm. We actually have a love letter thing at the back where you can write a letter to your love. You can sign it anonymously <laughs> and peg it on a clothesline that I've been assured by Jim is down the back somewhere uh, I am unsure if Jim is going to read out the letters or not so definitely if you don't if you're worried about that sign in it anonymously <laughs> uh, but yes write your love a letter whether it be familial or sexual or the idea of love or the person you've got a big fucking... Ugh, thump and crush on, you know? <laughs> Write them a letter. And it might, I'm not sure if it's getting read out or not. <laughs> I'm not, I've not been informed. Is it getting read out? That is so beautiful. Okay, if they only didn't hear, someone else takes it home at the end of the night. Yes, so you're going to share your love with someone else in this room and it may and it, it probably won't be, the love letter will probably not be for them but you're going to share that little fucking beautiful bit with them. Okay, so we're going five minute break. Have a have sh- have a have a, have a, have a quick poo, get your things in. I'm all about that, uh, you know, that like Kellogg's man, you know. <laughs> all right, and we'll see you back in five minutes. Get a drink and have a smoke and have a wee. All right. Anyway, so we're back. Uh, we're back from the break. I hope everyone did a very <laughs> quick poo. <laughs> Just keep digging that poo hole. Uh, it's not really a hole, is it? Okay. Um, cool. So uh, we're back from the break. Everyone did a quick poo and, and reminder, the love letters at the back, write one, write it to your secret love and it'll be given to someone else. ...which is very cool. Um, There are no more copies of Archer. Because everyone got their little mitts on a copy... ...which is great. Fuck yeah! Okay. So, uh, on with the show. So, we've got our next artist on. Eugene Yang. (laughs) You're popular! (laughs) Cool. Uh, Eugene Yang is a freelance writer and journalist from Melbourne... ...undertaking a creative practice... A PhD at, at RMIT University. His work covers the topics of race, culture, masculinity and famu- family and has been published by the ABC, SBS, The Suburban Review, Mouse Magazine, Penciled In Magazine, IBAG Magazine and Page 17 Literary Magazine. Eugene is exceptionally emotional about food and has an irrational fear of, of giant squids. All right, give it up for Eugene! Yeah!
5: <laughs> oh, it's that one! Okay. It's alright. I um, just want to clarify that if I'm red in the face right now, it's not because I'm terrified of public speaking. It's because I lack the enzyme in my liver that's required to process alcohol. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm not self-conscious. I'm just consciously poisoning my body so I can socially interact. Um, uh, there it is. Another man who suffers from Asian flush is Haruki Murakami, <laughs> who <laughs> um, who wrote Norwegian Wood, which is the text that I've got my quote from. I first read it when I was 18, and it was this really powerful, um, this powerful representation of the turbulence of a young and raw kind of love that I think we all experience around that age um, before no love knows what it is and how it feels and at a time when it might be mixed with other first-time feelings like grief and loss and guilt. Um, So this quote comes up in the third act, and it's when the main character, Toru Watanabe, is 20 years old and languishing about being caught between two loves. He talks about, quote, a tremendously quiet and gentle and transparent love for one woman and a wholly different emotion for another that, quote, stands and walks on its own living and breathing and throbbing and shaking me to the roots of my being. I don't know what to do he says in a letter. I'm not trying to make excuses for myself but I do believe that I have lived as sincerely as I know how. I've never lied to anyone and yet I find myself tossed into this labyrinth. A reply comes back from essentially the book's only adult five days later. I think you take everything too seriously. (laughs) Um, Also, side note, labyrinth. Like, that's such a male term to describe your angst. (laughs) Um, uh, It was funny revisiting the book for tonight and finding this one line there because it's this, like, fundamental story about angst and pain and then there's just one adult that's, like, "Calm down. No one's getting (laughs) tossed into labyrinths. It's all okay. Um... They're this subtle voice of maturity that's hinting that nothing is permanent and that the good and the bad that can feel like the peaks and the pits of our lives always move on to something new, and that love is a messy and imperfect process that we need to trust and work through that sometimes fails, um, rather than something to expect in a perfect package from the very beginning. That's an understanding of love that I've grown into more recently, and I wish I'd Take a note of this quote a little bit earlier on my first reading of Norwegian Wood because maybe I'd have been spared a bit of anguish myself. Um, (laughs) It then occurred to me that this whole novel is framed as an extended reflection of an old Toru Watanabe who loses himself in this traumatic and extensive recollection of young love every time he hears Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. And without taking anything away from the real drama of the story, it made me think about maybe... One tragic aspect of the book being that he missed the meaning of those words because love is so often put on a pedestal of perfection. Um, There's another text that has informed a younger idea of love that I held, which will come through in the thing that I actually wrote. Um, It's a really beautiful poem, but it's also grounded that hyper romanticized, idealized, glamorized notion of love that just made everything too serious, too expectant and too short-sighted. So I wrote something for tonight that kind of plays on that progression um, of the ways we expect too much, the ways we might reject it, even as we think we're seeking it. Um, (laughs) It's called Bright Starfish. Every time I see a star in the night sky, I'm reminded of John Keats' bright star and how you were almost my own. I was 24 then, awoken in the dead of the night by a cold wind from an open window was the warmth of your body lay beside me. I pulled the blanket away, slowly, quietly, and arose naked into the chill night air to close it. Our clothes were scattered across the floor, remnants of a night of passion, of hands exploring bodies like nomads traversing new land, marveling in its beauty and promise of the future, of passion, living and breathing and throbbing and shaking me to the roots of my being. I beheld you in my sight as I turned back, Entwined in your sheets and pillows, slithers of your skin exposed and illuminated so softly by the light of the moon, my sleepy heart awoke. It dawned on me then that this was love, that just as Keats longed for time to stand still to look upon his lover Fanny Braun with the eternal adoration of a star gazing down onto the beauty of Earth, this was the moment of my love's affirmation. You, I realized aloud, you are my Fanny. (laughs) I moved to look upon you Not lone in splendor hung aloft the bed Your bosom betwixt those cotton sheets Rising and falling with tender Taken breaths And in my gaze I beheld the lives we would lead The places we would go The careers and adventures and children we would share Wait, children? (laughs) (laughs) My waking heart beat faster How far away would they be? Would I be ready? Would I be a good parent? What if something happened to me, to us? What if you forgot my nut allergy and poisoned me in a foolish attempt at love? What tragedy would befall us then? What if we holiday to Italy and you meet a local to gallivant away with while I'm caught back here paying off a mortgage and supporting our ungrateful spawn? (laughs) Sweat grew upon my forehead. No, love doesn't doubt like this, I thought. I feel less like Keats's star and more like a simple meteorite pulled towards you, soon to dissolve in your atmosphere. Yes, dissolve, I thought. I should do that. Perhaps it's best I leave now. It's the polite thing to do when one doesn't find true love immediately. <laughs> I rose again from the bed, forgetting our clothes scattered across the floor remembering them only when I slipped and crashed upon the ground where sleep reclaimed me. (laughs) Many years later, as you face the firing squad of your friends questioning what you see in me, you would remember that distant night that was the first we shared, and the heavy thud that awoke you, and your confusion on finding my body. Asleep, alone on the floor, limbs splayed like a dislocated bright starfish. Naked on a cold winter night, yet sweating. Face engulfed in your underwear. (laughs) But I was lucky that accidental sex appeal is your favorite kind of sex appeal. (laughs) And apparently, my cold and sweaty body glistened nicely in the moonlight. (laughs) Nicely enough that, as sleep reclaimed you, you thought I was worth keeping around. And that when the sun rose, you kept me around long enough to find other things with which to fall in love.
0: Hi, I'm Izzy, the Artistic Director at the Emerging Writers Festival. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll check out the rest of the Digital Writers Festival at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. You can listen, make and play. And we've got ghosts of the internet, new machine learning tools for writers and experiments in digital storytelling. We've also got some really special webinars, including uh, one with one of my favourite audio producers, Mitra Kaboli from The Heart. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we love you right back. So drop us a review, recommend us to a mate, and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen.
1: That was awesome. Oh, my God. It went so fucking good. It's exciting. All right. Mm-hmm. Our next artist is Gabriella Georges. Gabriella Georges is a Syrian-Australian singer, writer and performer based in NAM, Melbourne, who often explores identity loss, grief and nature. In 2018, she became a part of West Writers Group, a diverse writers' collective based in Footscray, and started performing songs in her her first language as part of a collaborative project called BookJare. Gabriella also facilitates open spaces around death, dying, grief and loss through her community-based project, Soul Arts, and is considered the weird youngest sibling of four sisters. This year, she is one of Jed Press's featured authors. Give it up for Gabriella! Hi everyone,
6: um, my name's, up. Uh, up. yeah, so I'm going to sit down, slowly, um, and try and to fix this mic thing. Oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you sit down. Oh.
1: <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> it's real tight. <laughs> have to Lucy. Maybe, uh, well, I can go down like that. But yeah. I was going to
7: yeah uh, um, uh, we c- there we go <laughs> okay <laughs> we're getting there I've
6: been
1: a comedian since I was 18 and I'm so <laughs> <too laughs> fucked with microphones <laughs>
6: get up alright cool maybe I should just keep talking cool <laughs> Um, so, yeah, um, thanks to Emerging Writers Festival for, um, I guess, having us all here and it's been, um, it's been really cool to see so many fresh voices and, um, I just want to say that I'm in the same club as Darlene. What I wrote isn't funny or sexy. <laughs> it's a little bit sad. Um, well, it's all about perspective, um. So, I'm going to um, sing a song, but first, I'm going to read something that I wrote. Um. So, yeah, m- maybe I should talk about my quote. That's not up there yet. Oh, I don't know it off by heart. So, um, it's, a, yeah, there you go. Um, it's a quote by um, Khalil Gibran, and and ever has it been that love knows not its own depth until the hour of separation? <laughs> <laughs> And um, I've been in the lead up to this event. I just started reading um, a lot of, I guess, poetry and writing by Halil Gibran about love. And I think I like fell in love with him in the process. And I'm just like, oh, great. Now I'm in love with a dead guy and I don't know <laughs> what to do about that. <laughs> yeah, his writing is just really um, profound. And this is something I read this book uh, quite a few years ago, but then I reread it when I was just feeling like um, I was maybe a bit lost, or I needed to. I, I knew at the time when I first read it that I learned so many things reading that book. So I just thought I need a little bit, a little bit of guidance and some wisdom from this book again. So I reread it, and it's such a neat like you could read it in a day, um, but there's so many amazing. Um, kind of pearls in there to to pick up to pick up on and this this quote kind of it's kind of like you know sometimes when um writers can articulate something you've been feeling or um but you just don't know how to put in words and then you hear something that someone's written or you read something and you're just like yes that's exactly what it is that's what I've been feeling or thinking about and um, this is one of those. So anyway, I'm just gonna start. So this is about loss and um, if you feel the need to, you're welcome to to step out or take a break. On March 23rd, 2009, I watched the most central person in my life take her last breath. I was 20 years old when my mom was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer. The diagnosis came as a shock to my three older sisters and I, as there was no known history of cancer in the family. We had no idea what we were in for. Hospitals were not places we were accustomed to, and medical professions were not people we regularly came in contact with. All we could do was learn as we went along, taken each day as it came. Over the four months following my mom's diagnosis, we saw our mom slowly deteriorate as the cancer and its treatment withered her away. These four months is really where the grief began. It began when the vibrant, nurturing, and tenacious woman we knew to be our mum started changing physically, emotionally, mentally, and possibly even spiritually. During this time, our growing grief existed in parallel with daily life, encased in moments of isolation and mostly invisible from the outside. Everyone deals with loss differently, but one of the first emotions I personally felt was actually relief. The relief of knowing that my mom was no longer suffering, or in pain. Over time, the reality of my mom's physical death continued to solidify with every birthday, anniversary, new year, and other special occasions that passed. Not least of all being Mother's Day. Some years when it comes around, I feel fine and move through it like any other day. Other years, I just wish it would all disappear that I could avoid it completely because it hurts knowing that I can't take my mum out or give her a hug and kiss like so many others I know. Sometimes I write a poem or a card for her and usually my sister and I will go and place flowers at her grave, wishing her a happy Mother's Day there. I've learned that just because a person dies, it doesn't mean the relationship or love dies with them. It can continue in many forms. For example, I continue to wear her scarves and accessories. I'm wearing her earrings and necklace today and her ring actually. Um, I continue to write to her when I'm feeling confused. I continue to revert back to wise advice she gave. I continue to share her words and talk about her. I continue to cook some of the meals she made albeit in my own way and in general I strive to live my life in a way that would make her proud and in a way that honors her spirit. I feel it in my body when I'm doing something my mum might have done if she were here, like an act of kindness or an act of service to others. Those moments are when I feel closest to her. Embodying her generosity reminds me that I am my mother's daughter and that her spirit does live on. And if there's one gift that grief has given me, it's perspective, knowing what really matters, knowing who really matters, and knowing life is too short to dwell on all the other shit. Um, So... Yeah, so over the years I've sort of spent a lot of time just thinking about things and um, processing things and I've realised that I guess the intensity of of the grief that one might feel is for me is a result of how, how loved I've been or how much love I've given in a way. It's funny, um, yeah, so it's like... It's actually a symptom of that love, that it it all will come to an end. And I think um, following my uh, sort of experience of grief, that it it sort of still continues, but it sort of made me realise that every relationship that I'm in, whether it's like with family members or whether it's um, with... I don't really I'm not really a romantic, but anyway, when I'm <laughs> if I'm dating or whatever, like I realise that I'm I'm always mindful that at some point it's gonna end. Or at some point that person's no no longer gonna be here. And um I think about that quite a lot and so um it's sort of changed my perspective on love. Um I don't really fa- fantasize about <laughs> um Advent, like, I don't really romanticize love at all. I just, I'm like, yeah, I just want to get to know the person, and if they're cool, we can hang out. But you know, if we can't be friends, then I'm really not interested. And (laughs) because it's like, um, that's the stuff that will remain, like, if that foundation, um, romance kind of, yeah, always like puts me off, and I'm just like, this is fake. I'm not falling for this. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, but um, I wrote this song this year. Um, I can't remember what prompted me to, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I guess, dedicated to anyone that's lost someone and also that's processing, that's going through grief. Um, I've realised, like, it's not something you just get over. It's something that you learn to live with um, and it just becomes a part of your life. So, well, in my experience. (laughs) You can all hear that.
7: It soured with tears. I thought I'd let you know, and maybe you'd visit. Maybe you'd visit, because just the other day I wanted to hear your voice. I wanted to feel. Ask how you do and how you do and just the other day I wanted to see your face I wanted to know Underground, constantly sifting through the lost and found. Got tired of digging, it's been ten long years, and still you won't miss. I thought I'd let you know, and maybe you'd visit. Why won't you visit? It's just the other day. Wanted to hear your voice. I wanted to feel your touch. I wanted to ask how you're doing, how you're doing. Just the other day, I wanted to see. To know if your hair's longer, short, has it grown? Has it grown? want Wanna give, wanna give, wanna give you my love. I wanna give, wanna give, wanna give you. want to give you my love just the other day I wanted to hear your voice I wanted to feel your touch I wanted to I Enough has longer show has it grow as it grow has it grow.
1: beautiful. Alright, so... Oh shit. <laughs> the bit. Cool, so, we are up to our final artist for tonight, and it is Alistair Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alistair Baldwin is a writer and comedian based in Nam, Melbourne. He's written for ABC's The Weekly, Hard Quiz, Get Kraken, in which she also appears as a very tired PA... <laughs> Uh, he was a Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellow for 2018 and has worked pub- and has had work published by Acme Ideas, Un Magazine, Art in Australia, Archer, SBS and more. Give it up for Alistair. Well,
2: thank you so much uh, for having me. Um, if I cry during my piece, um, don't give me credit for that. That's the residuals from your amazing <laughs> song. Um, um, but, yes. So, my quote uh Agatha Christie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, growing up, I read many books about the bonds of friendship and family. Enid Blyton's The Magic Faraway Tree, as my mum did. And then when I grew too old for that kid shit, Enid Blyton's The Famous Five. um, <laughs> It's actually pretty edgy stuff. Um, (laughs) There was the globe-trotting lion boy trilogy by Zizu Korda, uh, which saw Charlie Ashanti, a young boy with the ability to talk to cats, free a family of lions from a travelling circus, who in return helped him free his parents from an evil pharmaceutical company. (laughs) Um, And of course, a series of unfortunate events, the dire tales of the Baudelaire Baudelaire orphans, who somehow survived through a mix of smarts, pluck, and sibling love. These books, expressly written for children, never delved into romantic love or sexual lust beyond the nascent crush, the rosy blush. No, the first books I read, devoured, that explored the intense pull of romantic love, were by the writer that would become my first literary obsession, mystery novelist Agatha Christie. Consequently, my understanding of romantic love was not always as something pure or good or constructive. (laughs) No, romantic love's quite different, I learned. It can be toxic, destructive. It can be so powerful to occlude all existing morals one might have, all deference to the criminal laws of the carefully maintained society you were raised in. Romantic love, I learned, is a potent motive for murder. (laughs) And this was only when romantic love was real, of course. More often than not, in a Christie work, romantic love was a facade, beneath which a deeper, cruder lust for wealth lay waiting. (laughs) I love you more than anything, declared handsome men with slicked-back hair to their fiancés, uh, keeping one... Blue eye, firmly locked on the inheritance, the house, the land they were marrying into. That, or love was a tool to be leveraged in a killer's master plan and discarded easily. Kill my husband and we can be together, whispered sultry women to their gardeners. (laughs) Fist clenched around the sharp hat pin that would sink smoothly into the the neck of that gullible lover once he'd done his job. Reading Agatha Christie, it's easy to believe she thought romance was folly. Indeed, part of the clarity that her two most popular detectives, Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot, had about the human condition was, explicitly and implicitly, a product of the lonely archetypes they embodied. The spinster, who knows human nature well by observing it at a distance. The emotionless sleuth, who sees people as puzzles. But to say that Christie's focus on love's downfalls means she cannot write of its uplifting joy is willfully reductive, if also a common argument that's made. Perhaps that's why the six romances she wrote in her time were sold under the pen name Mary Westmacott. As we all know, once you're pigeonholed into one genre, no one would believe you're a dab hand at another. This was, in fact, something I believed about Christie until I burned my way through the Marples, burned my way through the Poirots, and in desperation settled for her lesser-known protagonists, (laughs) Tommy and Tuppence, introduced in The Secret Adversary. It begins with two childhood friends running into each other on the street, who decide to get lunch. In their 20s, in the 20s, Tommy, a demobilised soldier who served in the Great War, and Tuppence a demobilized nurse, have both spent their gratuities. The small sum of money as thanks for postponing their youth to serve queen and country. The absence of a purpose, of the excitement that comes with daily tragedy, leaves them drifting, aimless, days filled only with time to fill, attention to capture. Tommy is hesitant to grab lunch until Tuppence cuts through the etiquette to declare that they can split the bill she knows he's just as poor as she is. Discussing the lack of excitement in their lives and job scarcity, Tuppence comes up with a grand idea an ad in the paper offering their youth, time, strength, and smarts to the highest bidder. They edit their ad together, deciding that putting the standard, no reasonable offer refused, might lend itself to only boring odd jobs. Instead, they hit on, two young adventurers for hire, willing to do anything, go anywhere, pay must be good, no unreasonable offer refused. Thus, the young adventurers limited is born, hired within the day to track down a treaty meant for the American embassy in London. (laughs) To speak too much of what happens next is to ruin the plot, but suffice to say, they are embroiled in espionage, murder and kidnapping. In finding each other, Tommy and Tuppence find a way forward, a friendship that becomes a business partnership that becomes, unsurprisingly, more. For them, and for me, love is pulling each other out of loneliness, out of boredom, out of a sadness you didn't know you lived with. Four months ago, when I agreed to this reading, I was over a year into my first real relationship over a year into my first true romantic love. Two months ago, it ended. It didn't end badly, nor, as this reading might suggest, did it end with me murdering him. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was quite amicable. We went to see Detective Pikachu at the cinema And within an hour of leaving, we broke up. (laughs) Now, I don't know how related Detective Pikachu is to the breakup. And seeing as I didn't pick Detective Pikachu as the literary piece to respond to, uh, you'll never know too. (laughs) I will say that the experience of agreeing to a reading about love shortly before breaking up with someone is like, Signing up to a Pilates class in a week's time. And then a day before it starts, you go see Detective Pikachu. um, And then an hour later, someone breaks your kneecaps with a baseball bat. (laughs) (laughs) But, like Tommy and Tuppence, me and my boyfriend started as friends. And gave each other one of the best gifts two friends can give each other. Something more. After the villain has been revealed and peace restored, Tommy and Tuppence find a moment alone to reflect on their first odd job as the young adventurers. It has been fun, hasn't it, Tommy? I do hope we shall have lots more adventures, says Tuppence. You're insatiable, Tuppence. (laughs) I've had quite enough adventures for the present. Well, Shopping is almost as good, says Tuppence dreamily. <laughs> think of buying old furniture and bright carpets and futurist silk curtains and a polished dining table and a divan with lots of cushions. <laughs> Hold hard, says Tommy. What's all this for? Possibly a house, but I think a flat, replies Tuppence. <laughs> "Who's flat, asks Tommy. You think I mind saying it? but I don't in the least. Ours, so there. You haven't really proposed now, not what our grandmothers would call a proposal, but what fun it will be. Marriage is called all sorts of things, a haven and a refuge and a crowning glory and a state of bondage and lots more. But do you know what I think it is? What, asks Tommy. A sport, says Tuppence. And a damned good sport too, agrees Tommy. (laughs) I think it's telling that Tommy and Tuppence are the only two Christie protagonists who actively live a full life. Marple and Poirot are written in a kind of stasis, remaining at the vague ages of old and quite old. (laughs) While the decades continue around them. But Tommy and Tuppence live a full life together. They get married, they get a house, they get a dog, they age as Christie does, and in Postern of Fate, the last novel Christie ever wrote, they're still solving mysteries together in their 70s. For me, I think that's what love is, or what it can be when it's not motivating people to murder. <laughs> love can be, quite simply, one of the best ways to spend the time you have. Thank you.
1: Wow, everyone's making me want to fall in love again. (laughs) It's terrifying. Um, I would like uh, everyone to give a huge hand to everyone who's performed tonight. So, give a huge hand to Natasha, Darlene, to Eugene, to Gabriella, to Alistair. Thank you so much. And a huge thank you to Archer, who put on this event, and uh, they've run out of free copies. But... Uh, I've been asked to also read a piece from Archer, and so I'm going to read a piece that I loved, a small a section of it, by actually uh, the writer is here tonight, uh, coincidentally. I loved her piece, Jess Knight's piece. I just, I, I loved it. It's so fucking good. So I'm going to read uh, the end of it. Sorry, spoilers alert. Um, uh, just, you want me to read the beginning? No, Oh. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't read the end, Claire! <laughs> okay. All right, cool. So, uh, this is by Jess Knight, who's a fucking great writer, and also Jess is doing a show in the Schmelbun Schminch Festival. I'm calling it Schmelburn Schminch because we are embargoed from saying we're doing a show in the Shmelb and Schminch. So, uh, have a guess at what the, fr- the festival that I, I'm just mentioning is Schmelborn Schminch. <laughs> All right. All right, so, <clears throat> uh, it's a Saturday night and my partner and I are on the couch sharing a bottle of wine, taking turns sipping from the bottle. This long day started with us fighting before I went to see my psychiatrist. When I returned home, we talked more and it turned into one of those truly beautiful moments that remind us why we're still together after six years. I'm trying to be a feminist now, living in sin with someone who didn't go to church every Sunday but is kind and loving. The perfect Mormon life means being the perfect mother and the perfect wife, and I'm so disinterested in it. Sometimes it still sets in suddenly it catches me off guard, the feeling that when I'm going about it all wrong and that I will pay in the end, the long-standing effects of religious indoctrinization. if living with someone you love and rejecting the rules dictated by old men claiming to be prophets ascending me to hell, if having a few sexual partners, kissing girls and questioning my sexuality throw me out of the heavenly father's favor, if finding autonomy and liking it really in liking it means that I'm really truly damned to misery, then why at this stage of my life do I feel I'm exactly where I'm meant to be? Once I accepted that there was more than one way to love, then the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints compulsory's heteronormative monogamy i felt a weight lifted from my shoulders my childhood doubting was a my childhood doubting uh, was a sign that my mind was intellectually curious and active this is a thorny path path i have chosen for myself i'm excited to discover where it leads me next as my partner and i talk and drink the sky outside darkens and i get drunker he does not love the story of how I got drunk for the first time. It makes him incredibly uncomfortable to think that someone, be- think, think of someone betraying me like that. I blurt out what I can no longer keep inside. It's not, what I, it's not that I want to get married, I take a deep breath, but if you did want to get married, out of all the people in the world, why, would you want to marry me? I slug from the bottle while I wait for, for his response. Of course, he says, somewhat baffled. We decide to have a party at some point instead, perhaps at the 10-year mark, if we make it that long. The idea that I have power to decide for myself whether to marry or not is comforting. Hearts are such huge muscles that contain multitudes. He cuts up fancy cheese and hands it to me with cherry tomatoes. I have no idea when he did this, but I'm inebriated and starving, so it's like magic food plucked from the ether." He carries me to bed, and the last thing I say is, I love you, but you're not my everything person. I close my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fucking beautiful. So fucking beautiful. Um, okay, so you've all made me want to lo- fall in love again, so that's the end of the night, so I hope everyone fucking falls in love again in some way. Or just, like, remember what love is. Nah. Just remember it. <laughs> all right, I've been Claire Sullivan. You've been all amazing. This is a late night read to love, Emerging Writers Festival, yeah!
0: Thanks so much for listening. We hope to see you right here online for the rest of the Digital Writers Festival program. This podcast series was put together by our brilliant program producer, Lynn Nguyen and the audio was produced by the fantastic Ahmed Yusuf. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs In Your Name. You can find them online as Huntley Music. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands this podcast reaches.